Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. If you've been here with us for the last nine months, you will know that we have been preaching and reading through the story of the whole of Scripture. We, nine months in, have found ourselves to the end of the Old Testament. And some of you are thinking, and amen. Like, I, it's, it's been hard. My, my mom said to me yesterday, because you now I've loved studying and reading through the Old Testament, but I'm really excited to be in the New Testament. I understand that feeling, especially when you're coming through the back end of uh, the Kings and Chronicles and the Prophets, where it's just so much negativity and there's, they're falling captive, and it's just kind of sad, and it's, it's, uh, it's just a lot. But I, I want to challenge us this morning uh, in a number of ways. First, we're going to have a review point. We begin the New Testament today, and I want to kind of hopefully uh, have enough of a review day that all those pieces can come together for you. The second thing I want you to see is the importance of the whole counsel of Scripture. I want it to be a burden uh, on us this morning. Uh, to kind of have a lighter way of doing that, Howard Hendricks has one of the favorite quotes of mine. It's a convicting quote. Every time I get near it or read it or think about it, my, my toes begin to get sensitive because it, it definitely is convicting. And Howard Hendricks was a um, professor at Dallas Seminary for a long, long time, real uh, famous influencer of Christianity here in our country. And he would ask his seminary students, do you know what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness? And there was always a student or two who was ready to quickly say, yeah, he quoted scripture back to Satan. And he would say, that's right. Do you know what he quoted? And almost never would there be a response. I mean, uh, you know, they kind of would guess, but they, it, it was always hard. And if you're like me, I don't know that I would know that other than just knowing it because of what I'm talking about. And probably many of you are sitting there going, I don't know what he said either. And he would remind those students that they quote, or Jesus quoted three really obscure passages, all from the book of Deuteronomy. In other words, Jesus didn't go to like the John 3.16s of the, New Te- or the Old Testament. He didn't go to like Deuteronomy 6. He, it wasn't that. He went to some passage that you and I probably don't even know is in the Bible. And remember, it's not like he could Google it. It was in his mind. He had memorized it. It was in his heart. He had fed on God's Word to the point that in that moment of crisis, he went back to an obscure passage in Deuteronomy. Then Dr. Hendricks would ask his students, if your spiritual survival depended on how well you knew the book of Deuteronomy, how do you think you would fare? And he would let that kind of sink in a little bit. And if you're like me, my toes are already getting sensitive, but he didn't stop. He went ahead and just hit them hard. He says, perhaps that is why you are not any more successful than you are in fending off the enemy's attack. God's people, throughout the revelation of Scripture, throughout the history of the church, must take and have taken a high view of Scripture. 
My favorite example of that in the Old Testament is in Nehemiah chapter 8 when the people of God come together for the reading of Scripture. And Ezra, who's going to read to them from, listen, early in the morning till up in the midday. So we're talking of hours of just reading books like Deuteronomy. Listen to their reaction. It says that they stood. They stood. They shouted, Amen, Amen. It is true. It is true. They lifted their hands, they bowed their heads, and worshipped the Lord their God with their faces to the ground. Listen, there's no music in this. This isn't a song. This isn't anything that's just instilling emotion. This is people who have their hearts so in tune with truth, they say, we will worship to the reading of God's Word. God's Word matters. The New Testament, it's the same way. My favorite example in the New Testament is Paul, who's speaking to a young Timothy, a young pastor. And Paul tells Timothy to preach the Word. Preach the Word, the revelation of God. Listen, today there's so many things that we like to hear. There's so many ways we get... Um, distracted I think even in our sermons and even in our lessons and all those kinds of things as we study and we hear God's word can I tell you the charge is to preach the word and he goes on and he reminds them he reminds Timothy and he reminds us that the word is good for encouragement and correction it's good for every facet of our life and it's where we get wisdom And he warns that there will be a day and there will be a time where people will gather and what they will want preached to them is not the Word. But they will want what is preached to them to already confirm their passions, what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, they will come to a place like this and they will sit in a pew and they will listen to a sermon, but what they will want is the affirmation of what they already hold true. They will not want to be challenged or convicted or stirred by the very Word of God. They will not want to be encouraged by its truth. Rather, they will look for someone who will affirm what they want to hear. The Word of God matters. Scripture matters. And so for the last nine months, we have not went through the Old Testament just because it was some novel idea. We've gone through the Old Testament because truth matters. Truth matters, and God has revealed the truths that matter most through the whole counsel of His Scripture. We must believe that. Let me say it a different way to kind of help, uh, uh, maybe help it connect with you a little bit. In our postmodern world, uh, there are many who reject the notion of absolute truth. And in doing so, there are many, many people who believe that as long as you have faith in some idea of God or God as a whole or uh, some entity known as to you by God, that that will be sufficient to the creator and sustainer of the world as faith in him. So in other words, you can cry out to Jesus or you can cry out to Buddha or you can cry out to Muhammad or the council of the power rangers. It really doesn't matter. As long as you cry out to somebody, that'll, that'll count as faith for you, Right? But we here at Tri-Cities, we don't believe that because the Bible teaches us that we are only saved, that we only come into the family of God, that we only know God through Jesus and Jesus alone. Acts chapter 4, verse 
12 says that. John 14, 6 says it this way. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And so what you're saying is, it matters that it's Jesus. It matters that it's Jesus. You believe that. And you believe that all those people who believe something else, they don't have the truth, and therefore they don't really know God. So let's take it another step further. I have a friend of mine in Kentucky. His name is Jesus, spelled just like Jesus. If I place my faith in Jesus, do I know God? And now you're looking at me. Some of you are laughing. Some of you are just, oh, that was silly and unnecessary. Here's my point. It's not just the name Jesus. It matters that it's the true, real Jesus. It matters that the Jesus you believe in is the Jesus that is the Son of God. It matters that you believe that he conquered death, paying the penalty for our sin, and is raised living, not dead. See, it matters who Jesus is, too. Do you see how truth works? So, as we now look at Jesus, we understand that our faith must actually be in the real Jesus, the true Jesus. Not just the one we want. And then even for us then as believers, for those of us who know Jesus, who have placed saving faith in him, we must understand that we come into that saving faith with a childlike faith, meaning our understanding and knowledge of even who he is and therefore who God is is very elementary. And through the sanctification and the Holy Spirit and the work in our lives, listen, we mature in our faith. In other words, what I'm saying to you is this. As believers, we should long to know Jesus more. Not just rest on culturally what we expect him to be. Not just rest on what we want him to be. But we should open up the very whole revelation of God to see how God has revealed himself to be. See, this is how truth directs what we believe. And so we must go to the council of Scripture. We must go to the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. We will not understand things like grace until we understand things like sin and the law. You won't. You'll miss really key contextual things behind whole books of the Bible if you don't know your Old Testament. You won't be able to understand chapters like Acts 15, which is the most significant meeting in the history of the world. We all love meetings, right? Acts chapter 15 is known as the Jerusalem Council. The apostles, the elders, all the Christian leaders at that time came and gathered and basically discussed what is essential for salvation. You know, you don't really understand what's going on there unless you understand God's covenant with his people back to Abraham and and talking about circumcision. You, You miss it. You miss it. You don't understand the tension in Galatians with Peter and Paul and all that's going on there unless you understand the Old Testament. Jesus says, and we'll talk about it in a minute, I have come to fulfill the law. You don't understand what Jesus fulfills and therefore ultimately the depths of who he is until you understand the law. So when we look through the Old Testament as a church, again, I want you to see, we've not just done this thing flippantly. We didn't just do it because, hey, let's read our Bible. It'll be a fun thing to do. It is because we believe that truth matters and God has revealed himself to us through the whole counsel of Scripture. John, I think, understood this well along with the other writers of the Gospels. 
they all introduced their gospel with a very, very broad historical overview, whether it's through genealogies or just John who's going to say, in the beginning. The point is, John understood that the revelation of God was important to the introduction of God. Everything has built to this moment. From Genesis 1, verse 1, we have progressed to this crucial moment. And John has the amazing opportunity to introduce the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who will offer reconciliation to the world. He has the opportunity to introduce him right now. And I want you to think, if you got to introduce Jesus, how would you introduce him? John, getting to introduce Jesus, does so by saying, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. That's no uh, like fancy Greek word there that means a bunch of other things. It means Word. It's logos, Word. In the beginning was the revelation of God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's what I want you to see. John is about to introduce the Savior of the world. But he understands that the Savior of the world is most understood within the whole revelation of God. And so this morning we're going to have a little bit of a review. As you've been reading through, and I know many of you have uh, through the Old Testament, you know, let me say it this way. In class, I used to be there, and I would learn more in the reviews than I would most of the time in the specific day-to-day. And I think because in the specific day-to-day, I got little bite-sized pieces, but somehow in the review, with the information of the bite-sized pieces, everything kind of came together. I'm like, oh, okay, I see how it works now. This morning, we're going to review our Old Testament to the point that we can introduce Jesus. And my hope for you is that as we walk through this, you will not see the Old Testament as commands, as a list of rights and wrongs, as just mere history. But you would see the Old Testament as the revelation of God, of Him making Himself known to the people of the world. If you've been behind on your reading, Start with us now. We're starting in the New Testament, and from here forward through the end of the year, we'll be preaching and teaching and reading through the New Testament. I'm so excited, but I want you to know John begins by saying, in the beginning. In the beginning. He goes back and he uses the exact same words from Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. In the beginning, God, the creator and sustainer of all things, created the heavens and the earth. All those billions of stars, light years out, he created them all. He created everything. And it was good. And God chose to create a being in his own image, in his likeness. And God created the first man, named him Adam. And Adam was good. 
And God found it good to make a helpmate for Adam. And from Adam's rib, he created the first woman. Her name was Eve. And Adam and Eve lived in a paradise called Eden. But listen to what's more important. They knew God. They knew him as a friend. There was an intimate relationship with him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They were in the presence of God and knew him. But Adam and Eve chose their selfishness. They chose themselves, their pride. They chose sin over that relationship with God. And they broke fellowship with God. And in that very moment, a righteous and holy God could have just ended Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve knew this. They knew God. They hid. But instead, God removed them from Eden. Listen. And promised that one day a son of man would come and would crush the head of the serpent and the sin. And listen, one day reconciliation would come. One day man would know God again. There would be a relationship there, a reconciliation. Adam and Eve were removed from their garden, removed from their paradise and told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and they begin to do so. They begin to have children. They have Cain and Abel, among others. And we know the story that Cain kills Abel. It's the first time we see the ultimate consequence of sin in a man's life. We see death. And generation after generation goes by, and God sees man's evilness. They despised God. They forgot God. They didn't care whether they knew him or not. And God decided to destroy all of mankind and the world and everything in it. But he found favor with a man named Noah. And he told Noah to build an ark that he was going to flood the world. And on the ark would be Noah, his family, and some animals. Now listen. You need to understand this to understand the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of God. And God sent a flood. And he killed every man, every woman, every child, every baby, everything but what was in that ark. And when Noah and his family drifted ashore, After the flood, they are told the same thing Adam and Eve were told. To multiply and fill the earth. And they begin to do so, generation after generation. And through an amazing idol that was meant to build to reach the heavens, God confused the languages of the people. And so the people begin to spread around the world. More and more people. And God found favor with a man named Abram, who he would later change his name to Abraham. And he promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the heavens, like the sand on the seashore. That they would be great. And listen, that they would have a great land, a land that was promised to them from God. But more than these two things, listen, God promised Abraham that through his nation, they would bless all other nations. Now, I don't even think Abraham grasped what that meant. But we understand that 
through the descendants of Abraham and through that nation, the Savior of the world would one day come, the one who would reconcile man back to God, the one who would make God known again. And so you would think Abraham would just have tons and tons of kids, but that doesn't happen. He has Isaac with Sarah, with his wife, the one who God had promised, Ishmael, in sin. God says, no, my promise will only go through Isaac. So we have one. Isaac then has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And to prove that I am a middle schooler at heart, one of my favorite verses, Jacob was a smooth-skinned man, Esau a hairy man. Also a great evidence that although all Scripture is meaningful and valuable, the weight of some verses is more than the weight of others. Okay? Jesus affirmed that in the New Testament, by the way, but that's a great example of it. Esau does one of the dumbest things in history. He sells his birthright. He sells his part in that promise over a bowl of stew. And so here we are now two generations later, and that promise of a great nation and a great land and a blessing to all other nations rests with Jacob. But Jacob would begin to have sons. He would have 12 sons, and from those 12 sons, we would come to know the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was Joseph. Joseph was the son his father loved the most. It was because it was with the woman that he loved the most. His brothers were jealous, and they sold him as a slave and told their father he was dead. Joseph goes to Egypt, and through a series of events and interpreting the Pharaoh's dream, ultimately, he finds himself second in command of all of Egypt, the world's first superpower. They would save up their food to prepare for a famine. The famine would come. Egypt would have all the food. And one day, his brothers would show up and say, hey, we need some food. Joseph would recognize his brothers, ultimately reconcile the relationship with his brothers and move his brothers and his father and this promised nation to Egypt where they would grow in number and in population, generation over generation, such to the point that years later there would come a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. And he would look out at these people and he said, man, there are more of them than they are of us. They're taking over our land. They're taking over our things. We must put an end to this. And he made them slaves. Israel, this promised great nation with a promised great land, finds themselves now slaves. And they cry out to God, God, this is not what you promised us. This is not what you promised our father Abraham. And God would raise up Moses, and Moses would lead this group of people, this group of slaves, out of the grasp of the world's greatest superpower. In miraculous fashion, through plagues and parting of Red Sea. And as they walked up to the fringes, if you will, of the land that was promised to them, They saw that in that land there were some awfully big dudes. (laughs) People they were afraid of. People that they were certain if they fought would win and would kill them. And so they were afraid. God was angry with their fear. He was angry with their disobedience. And more so, their lack of faith in Him. 
And he told that generation that they would not see the promised land, and they didn't. For the next 40 years, they would wander around in the desert, and that generation would die, and a new generation would come up behind them. And led by Joshua and Caleb, they would go in and conquer the land. But I want you to know those 40 years were not a waste. In those 40 years, God gave them the law. The first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch as it's known, Moses writing the law for them. It's more than rights or wrongs. Listen, it is the revelation of God. He began to make himself known to his people. He began to give them as a nation order and how they should live. And they would live faithfully in that land for a generation. And then they began to compromise. Now, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't completely reject God. They wouldn't say, hey, no, I'm not with him. They would, if you would have asked them, Yahweh, God of Abraham, that's my God. But if you ask them, what's that thing in your field? Well, I couldn't get it to rain. And I asked this guy, so these people who were here before us, how did they get it to rain? And like, I don't know, but they had that little statue out in their field and it seemed to rain. Like, okay, let's put the statue out in their field. I mean, it was just subtle little compromises that they placed their faith in other things. Not God and God alone. And so God would send an oppressor, someone to make life difficult on them, someone to make them cry out in their desperation for help. And eventually they would cry out to God, and God would then send a judge, someone to deliver them from the oppressor and to point their attentions back to God, and that would happen. And this cycle continues to happen throughout the book of Judges until one day, toward the end, the people of Israel said, listen, everybody else has a king, we too should have a king. And they chose the guy who looked the part. They chose Saul, big, tall, strong dude. I mean, listen, in image leadership, something our culture is very familiar with, man, he'd be our guy, right? And it started off well, but very quickly, Saul began to compromise as well. He began to do that which was right in his own eyes. And God took the kingdom from Saul, and he gave it to David. David was a man after God's own heart. David was the one who, God says, listen, man, he pursues my heart. David loved the Lord. He wasn't perfect. He had his sins and maybe had had some of the most sinful mistakes in Israel's history. But God sees David and he promised David something. He made a covenant with David that one day a descendant of David's would reign on the throne forever. And would forever rule God's people. That is an amazing promise. A promise to David that the Savior, the Messiah, the one to come, the one who will reconcile us to God, will come in your line. David would give over the kingship to his son Solomon when he died. And Solomon would then turn and give uh, the kingship over to what would eventually be a split, a divide of the country. Israel would go to the north, and all of the northern countries would come together, and they would rally around a king, and they would be Israel. And Judah, a tribe in the center where the temple is, a smaller but more significant central location to Israel, would remain as Judah. There would basically be a civil war with two kings. And so we end up with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and these two different groups of the same promised people we will begin to continue to read through our old testament we find that both 
these kings and both uh, these uh, groups of people begin to turn their attention from the Lord. They begin to compromise. They begin to worship idols. They begin to ignore the God who had called them. And God would send the Assyrians first, and the Assyrians would come in and begin to take the northern kingdom captive. Then it would be the Babylonians, and Judah would fall as well. The temple will be destroyed. Israel's system, the greatness of their nation, was in rubble. And through an amazing, miraculous thing, after generations have gone through such trial, God sends them back to rebuild what was destroyed. And they rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild their nation. And by the time we turn the page and we hit John chapter 1, it is true that they are under Roman captivity. But the things that are most core to them have been rebuilt and restructured. There is a temple. There is a place of worship. There is, listen, a leadership dynamic within this great nation that was promised to Abraham. And I want you to think for just a moment, if you're a leader in Israel and you've gone through all of that, you read all those pages back and you realize all of the harm and all of the punishment that has came from taking your eyes off of God, they were so intent to follow the law. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, all of that, thousands of years have led to this moment this moment right here all of it has been building to reveal the ultimate glory of God that he might make himself known to his people see Israel could not know God left to themselves the darkness around them and in their sin is too thick we, we should grasp that when we read the Old Testament. We're not going to try hard enough to overcome our sin. It is a stain that will not go away on us. It is something that we in ourselves cannot overcome. So listen to the terminology John uses in verse 4. In Him, the Word that is now flesh, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. What was once too dark has now been lit. Jesus lit up the world. The revelation of God has come to its most crucial point. God is making himself known beyond just speech, beyond just words on a page. God is making himself known by taking on flesh and walking among us. And so verse 14 John writes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything, past, future, is pointing to this ultimate revelation of the Son of God. Verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let's break that down a little bit. First, you see that we have this contrast from the law and it comes from Moses and this grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. I want to again remind you, Jesus is not abolishing the law. He is not abolishing the Old Testament. He is not looking back and saying, this, doesn't no, this no longer matters. Instead, Jesus himself said, I have come to fulfill the law. Follow me. If Jesus is fulfilling the law, and I want to deepen my understanding of who Jesus is, understand that if I understand the Old Testament, if I understand the law, then I understand what He fulfilled. That means I understand more of His character and who He is. The point is, all that we've read for the last nine months, all that we've studied, has helped us, lead us to a point to where we can know the true Jesus that we can know the one true God. It says no one has ever seen God. But He has made Himself known. We can't see the fullness of God. We can't comprehend the fullness of God. I mean, when you begin to think about a being that is all-powerful, that is all-controlling, that just blows my mind. If you can figure all that out, you need to have something, a conversation with me because I'm, I'm missing it. He is so immense. I can't get my mind around him. I can't see his fullness. He, though, is making himself known to the world. This is what we mean by the term gospel. See, as we turn our New Testament, we come into four Gospels. Gospel means good news. We have four authors who write these Gospels at the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They are the, their accounts of the revelation of God to man. They are the accounts, listen, that Jesus is the good news. That we are no longer in darkness. That we are no longer separated from God with no hope of knowing Him. The good news is this, that you can now know God. That doesn't mean you can know Him for whatever you want Him to be. That doesn't mean that He's relative. No, He is one true God. But He has made Himself known to us. This is good news. John will go on later in chapter 17, verse 3, and he says, it's Jesus, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The story of Scripture reveals to us who God is. And the greatest revelation is His Son, Jesus Christ. And we understand Him and we know Him through the gracious act of the revelation of God in this Bible that He has maintained for, for years. 
It's how we know him. So what does this mean? What do you want us to do with this this morning? First, I want to challenge you. If you're here and there's never been a time in your life where you have placed faith in Jesus, the real Jesus, I want you to know that you do not know God. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that you know God. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that you will be reconciled back into the relationship, the intimacy with the creator and sustainer of all life. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that you will have an eternal life in the presence of God. And the gospel is that he has done what you and I could not for ourselves. That he, God, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and then took on our very sin and its very consequences on a cross. And he paid the penalty for that sin in his own death. But he, being God, being the most powerful, the most supreme being, conquered death three days later and rose again and offers that very salvation through his account to you and I through faith and faith alone. That you and I would no longer want to live a life apart from knowing God. That we would turn ourselves and we would cry out with great faith that we would say, Lord, Jesus is Savior. He is God. He has done what I cannot and place faith in Him and His work, His life as their own. And through that simple childlike saving faith, we can know God. We can know Him. And if you're here and you've never done that, I, I plead with you this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict and change your heart and compel you and bring you to a place to know God. And that maybe you've never prayed a day in your life, but this morning, right where you sit, you would go to the Lord in prayer and you would acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God who took on your sin so that you might know Him. And that you put your hope and your faith in him and him alone. For those of us here, and we've made a decision like that. Brothers, sisters, listen, I, I, I speak with great conviction. This, this bothers me personally in my own life. It's so convicting. I do not want to rest in my childlike faith. I want to grow deeper, stronger, more mature. I want to have a longing to know Jesus more and more. We have a Bible that has been given to us by God that is more than a book. It is the very living revelation of who God is. I want you to be compelled not to just read it, not to just kind of look at it and glance at it, not just to go to a little class here or something there, but that it would become the passion of your life, that it would become something that through it you worship God, that with great diligence you would see that all the wisdom, all the love, all the understanding of who God is is found in its pages.
And that you would pursue it not just for head knowledge, not just to be a hearer of the Word, but that you would pursue it with brokenness and humility that you might also be changed by it and become a doer of the Word. That we, as a people of God, might know Him more. I told the first service this. I'll say it to you. It wasn't planned, and it's just something that's always kind of been in the back of my head for the last uh, year or two. If I were going to write a book, by the way, this will get me in trouble, so just stay with me as I walk through. If I were going to write a book right now, I would write a book on why you should stop doing your devotions. Now, I don't want us to stop studying the Bible every day, and I don't, and listen, if the devotion is a starting point for you, then start there. But I'm talking about believers who've been in the faith for 10 and 20 years. Can I just tell you, when you look through the Bible, you don't find just kind of somebody who looks at their Bible, reads five-minute verse for some kind of like almost spiritual fuel up to get them through the day and says, what does this mean for me? You don't find any of that stuff in Scripture. What you find in Scripture are believers who love the Lord, who long to know Him and study it becomes their passion. All the resources that we have today, and perhaps our culture is the most biblically illiterate it has ever been. That is a shame on us. That's a shame on us. And it's not because we don't have time, and it's not because it's not relevant. It's because, listen, as believers, we have become content to be childlike in our faith. We've become content to have a childlike understanding of who our God is. I would challenge you as a church, may we be described in our community and around the world, may Tri-Cities Baptist Church be described as a church that values the Word of God, that seeks its truth, that is compelled to live by it, be changed through it, because we so desperately want to know God more and more. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. I'm going to ask you to make this a time of prayer and a time of response. As the team comes up to prepare to play, I again want to challenge you. If you're here and you've never placed saving faith in Jesus, you do not know God. He offers adoption into his family. He offers reconciliation. He offers salvation and eternal life. But you must know him. And the only way you will know him is through saving faith in Jesus. Again, I challenge you to make today the day. For those of us who are believers, may we remind ourselves that truth matters and that the whole counsel of God is His revelation that we might know Him. May we be convicted. May we be encouraged. May we be challenged. May we be rebuked. May we love and worship through the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would make yourself known to us. First, Lord, for those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that this very morning the Holy Spirit would convict them, would show them the reality who you are and that your word would lead them to saving faith and a changed life and eternity Father for those of us who are your children Lord I pray that you would continue to do
do a sanctifying work in us. That you would continue more and more day after day to reveal yourself to us. That we may know you more and more. But Lord, I pray for our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would not be content with a childlike understanding, Lord. That we would long to be mature. That we would long for a deeper understanding of who you are and that it would compel us to go to your word to study it like we've never studied it before to give it a place in our life of great elevation that it would change the way we think that it would change the way we live Lord I pray that you would do this in our church that you would do this in me Father as we stand and as we sing Do a work in us and make yourself known. We love you. We pray this in the name of your Son, in the name of Jesus, you in flesh. Amen.